This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we have another episode of The Professor and the Practitioner. I'm joined by Dr. Whitney Martinko of Villanova University, coming to us live from the city of brotherly love in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And speaking of Pennsylvania, in the last episode, we talked about the fact that I visited the Ephrata Cloister, um, one of the most unique and oddest and uh, interesting places I'd visited in a long time. And I guess it it was such uh, an evocative description that it just meant that Whitney had to go see it and took a loved one there. So, Whitney, uh, you dropped that on me as in our in our pre-show meeting about um, sort of some things that we wanted to cover, and you said, "Oh, I went to Ephrata. We've got to follow up." So. Let yeah. me have it. What was it like? Yeah. What'd you think? Tell yeah, me all thanks, about Nick. it. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the, the recommendation. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And I think we'll be all coming down off of that turkey coma, perhaps after um, a big meal. But I did. I started my pre-Thanksgiving weekend by going to Ephrata. It had been on my list for a while. I live in Philadelphia, as you all may know. And so my mom was visiting and we went out there and had a great day trip. I had not expected that there would be so many mid 18th century buildings restored, but still standing, right? They're they're not, some that are reconstructed, but many of the large ones are not. And I mean, what a cool place to visit. I think the most of... Well, I guess just to remind everyone, this is a German pietist community started by one person who kind of had his own vision of worship and went out to Ephrata outside of what was then Conestoga in Lancaster and started a religious community that had very strict rules about what to eat and how to pray and how to work. And some of the buildings that were built by the 1740s were four and five stories tall. They're massive buildings. And I just could not get over the fact that people would have been seeing buildings of this size in a very rural area at this point. Like, I mean, they're, they must have been bigger than most buildings in Philadelphia in the 1740s. I mean, did the scale of any of this strike you or maybe? That's interesting. I don't think, you know, it's funny because I... I, I don't often think so much as kind of where I live and what I interact with. I don't think so much of the urban landscape in that period as you do because of where you live, you know, and, and, you know, Baltimore at that point was nowhere near what Philadelphia was. So, you know, my kind of context is a little different. That's interesting to think about that. I mean, you're right. These were huge. And, and the, the cloister name, as you probably caught on or heard, was not what they called themselves. It's because people going by thought they were Catholic because yes. there were these big sort of grandiose structures and they were all wearing like white robes. Yeah, white linen or wool, depending <laughs> on the season, right? And sort of the hoods and the long robes. And the tonsure. And... They had tonsured hair, hair right? The little, uh, you know... Um, That's fascinating. I honestly didn't... I didn't pick up on that. I didn't realize about the, the hair, but... I mean, yeah, these massive buildings were basically dormitories, right? They were for the the folks who chose to live these solitary lives. There was a women's dormitory, which is still standing. 
um, with, a, with a church, sort of a worship space attached to it. And then there was the men's dormitory down the hill, which is not standing anymore. But both of these buildings were just massive and have these sort of big um, sort of dormered windows in them. And I mean, five stories in 1746 in Conestoga, right? In the Susquehanna Valley to me is just, I was, I was amazed. So it was a fascinating say. I'm curious, you know, so you work in the industry, in the, in the history and preservation industry, your mother presumably doesn't. Um, So what was her perspective on it? Was it like, wow, this is weird or like, this is cool or what was the takeaway? And I'm also curious what you thought of the interpretation, like um, how they're doing it, what they're, what they are getting right, what they're not. I have some thoughts on it, but I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to speak to it. So my mom is not a history professional, but she is very interested in history. She loves doing genealogy that had been part of her interest in going there. She, some of her family in the 18th century lived around that area. I think she might even suspect they were the householders maybe, or at least related to some of the householders in the area. Um, This is sort of, you know, cousins of direct ancestors, but so she had a, a pretty good grounding and like very local 18th century history because she had been interested in sort of tracing some of the families. So I think she really enjoyed it. She enjoyed learning about, you know, this, the very distinctive sort of individual religion of the Conrad Beisel, right? The, the founder of this place and thinking about why would people choose to live either the solitary life, right? Where they live in these dormitories and have a very regimented way of living or the householders, which lived, they were not celibate. They had families, they farmed, they didn't live these sort of really structured lives, but they did worship there. So I I enjoyed the interpretation. It was, um, it was pretty straightforward. We had a very engaging guide focused on the 18th century for the most part, right? Here's what daily life would be. We had some younger people on our tour. He kept encouraging them to think about, oh, you know, go try the hard wooden bench that is really a bed with the wooden pillow. The wooden try pillow. And, yeah, I the like wooden the pillow also, is a big theme, right? I don't know if you caught it. If you, you headed to the gift shop, it was, it was a good gift shop. I thought it was cool. They had some mm-hmm. neat stuff. Um, they were selling wooden pillows. So I don't know if you picked one up. Our guide did tell your, us that. Yes, yeah, we did not husband, pick up our own. For yeah, Christmas. we did not. Yeah, we did not that pick was, that up. <laughs> but yeah, if people are listening and want a wooden pillow, um, you probably can That's get the one place for, to get it. Yeah. The yeah. holidays are coming. It's a, it's a great opportunity to pick up a nice Christmas gift. Yeah. I don't know. I'm curious. What did you think about the interpretation? I have more thoughts about the signage, but I want to hear about your tour. First. Yeah. I thought we had a great, to- great guide. He was very knowledgeable. I think sometimes interpretation at sites, you know, I was a park ranger at CNO Canal, um, national historical park and, and Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a fine line between information and interpretation. And we could do a whole episode on this um, and like places we think are doing great interpretation versus sort of, sort of information. Information, mm-hmm. in my mind, is like just sort of filling your head with facts and information. And interpretation, and this goes back to like my training with, um, you know, National Park Service theory on this kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, and, and Freeman Tilden, who was sort of mm-hmm. the fa- grandfather of National Park Service interpretation. In fact, I have his I was looking over here because I have his book, Interpreting. Yeah. Our <laughs> um, but, you know, the the idea of sort of creating a spark and getting people interested in the concept and the story that you're telling. 
I think it lent, lent itself more towards information and not so much interpretation and kind of getting people interested in, in sparking their curiosity mm -hmm. about like sort of the big questions around this. Like, why does this site matter? Why did they live this way? What was going on at that time period that would cause someone to think about this? What kind of scary things were happening in their lives that would, you know, cause them to kind of head down this road of piety and, and those sorts of things? It was it was much more focused probably in some ways on what people want to know like why what when when was it built why was it here who were the people how did they live that kind of thing mm, so yeah i think it's it's challenging to kind of create that balance um but you know that would be my only you know i i i think sort of you kind of walked away i think not really understanding or not even thinking about like well why would someone live like this yeah. Um, and what, what would cause someone to go in this direction? And I guess perhaps the other challenge, too, is we don't really know. Um, right. But I think one thing that I like is historic sites that don't try and give you every answer because we don't always know. And I think that maybe people visiting historic sites who, who don't work in the industry think we do. Right? right. Or it's sort of like people think about what you do. Right. Like, well, you, you know, you we know history. This is what happened. Right. And. Obviously, but we often don't. Right, <laughs> you've made an entire investigation. Yeah, you've mm -hmm. made an entire career on the fact that we don't know. Right, like if we knew everything, then we wouldn't need historians anymore. Right, right, and then it's it all not. Out. <laughs> and as you point out, that it's not just about facts, right? But that it's yeah. about we can talk about um, academic interpretation in many ways too. Sort of that analysis. What does it all mean? Right, there's no just sort of objective fact about why we should care, what the significance is, right? This is right. what we're also always trying to explain. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I There were moments where our guide, I think, did a little bit more of interpretation, that, that sort of provocation, right? Asking people right. questions and getting them to think. One moment when he brought that up was in speaking about women and sort of, well, what other options were there for women in this time? Why would you want to come to a place like this and live this very strict life as a woman and, and thinking about, well, what if you were in an abusive marriage or what if you didn't really want a certain type of gender norm defined, you know, um, relationship as a woman, this might be another option. Yeah. Right? And he said that there was evidence of um, men in the area primarily coming and saying, my wife ran away to you. You know, what are you doing breaking up families? So I thought there were moments of that, but they weren't necessarily historicized, right? It wasn't about like in the 18th century, here were, you know, these specific op options or like what was going on. I thought the film at the beginning did a, a little bit of a better job speaking about Germany and why Beisel and many people left Germany in the early 18th century, warfare, hunger, um, sort of religious dissent, right, in a state-mandated um, church. So, but I agree. And that's where, as a historian, right, I'm always, I'm always pushing people, like, what's the big historic, like, why do we need to know the history, right? Why is this right. not just about, why like, does it go, matter? go lie down on the bed. Oh, it feels hard. Well, like, even that can be historicized. That That's, like, a different, there are different concepts of comfort in the 18th century, right? Which does not explain the wooden bed, but it sort of gives a different way of thinking. So think about, you know, why does history matter? But I appreciated that in their signage, this is sort of the, the last thing I'll say about it, that their signage in the different buildings did tell a fuller history of the history of the site in the 19th and the 20th century, all the way up to today. So thinking about the 
community there and how they got into so many different court cases, sort of lawsuits, family struggles about what should happen with the church and the site. Um, so I'm somebody who's interested in the history of property and how different people are claiming to do something for the public good or the communal good, but actually like fighting, right, for very different um, definitions of the public good. And it seems like those kinds of disagreements really shaped the effort of community in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, it's a really fascinating early preservation story that isn't as isn't told as often as others are. I mean, there's, there's some, as you know, like someone who has written extensively on this, there's like sort of like the greatest hits of preservation. Like everybody has to talk about Mount Vernon ladies association. You have to talk about, you know, independence hall. You have to talk about maybe Washington's headquarters in Newburgh. Like there's these sort of like, you know, the, the, you know, that's like the, the A side. And then there's like the B side hits of preservation. And it's like, oh, effort is really early on. And it's the state saying we have to protect this place and the governor getting involved. And um, yeah, so I th- I, I was just as fascinated by the, that preservation story. And then there's some other buildings on site that come later that aren't as well interpreted. And, and I right. think it's sort of that like it kind of gets back to that whole like, well, this is our period of significance, right? And yes. so this thing doesn't really fit that story. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was a, I think it's a fascinating place. The state of preservation was very good. The state has obviously, the state of Pennsylvania has obviously invested significant sums in, um, yes. you know, protecting the site and these 18th century structures and the, and it's early stuff. So yeah, I think, you know, and this kind of blends into that other conversation we wanted to have as we approach, we're recording this as we approach Thanksgiving. Uh, we're all feeling very festive and grateful right now. Um, and how historic sites tell the story of the holidays right. and inclusively kind of do that. But also kind of, we, we hadn't really thought about it this way, but kind of where that conversation is headed. Is it informational in the way that they tell those stories or is it interpretational, right? Are they sparking some concepts and asking questions or are they loading you with, uh, you know, your your uh, figurative Thanksgiving plate full of information? Facts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> your is fact it, dinner. <laughs> yeah, here's your fact dinner. We're going to tell you everything about how a Victorian Christmas was celebrated. Or do we ask questions about, well, why, what does this say about people? And what does it say about us in the way that we now celebrate and experience the holidays and Thanksgiving and how Thanksgiving has its meaning has shifted. Um, and the fact that we don't, we do it and it doesn't happen in the UK. And what does that say about, you know, our experience? Um, I know last year we did an interview around this time with, um, Dr. Silverman, uh, in his book, this land is their land, which is sort of a reappraisal of the history of Thanksgiving. And I know, um, the site most associated with it, Plymouth plantation now is Plymouth Patuxent. Um, as a way of sort of incorporating and, and reinterpreting that. But given all the effort to try and reinterpret what the original Thanksgiving was and what it wasn't, it seems like we still kind of cling to that original story. Um, I think that's dis- right. Despite the and best it- efforts of historians, I don't really think it's it's kind of hit the national consciousness. I don't think so either, which is really surprising because, yeah, if you look at social media, right, you still see all of these first graders dressed up as 
you know, pilgrims and Indians. And it's mm-hmm. like, what, how are we still doing this? Like, this yeah. is not, this just doesn't seem to be where we should be given that historians, indigenous communities, local historians, right. All have really pushed back on this narrative, right. This is not something that's being done in some corner of an academic library, right. There are popular books. There are um, sites like uh, Plymouth Patuxet now that Mm -hmm. are, are, you think they're changing the narrative, right. So how are we still in this state where we're still teaching um, children about this past. I mean, not teaching children about, about this past, I guess, by having them dress up in these sort of... Yeah. And I will say, to the credit of my um, five-year-old's kindergarten teacher, mm-hmm. um, my daughter came home, we were talking about something, and she was looking in a Thanksgiving book, which sort of told a traditional Thanksgiving story. And she said, oh, look, those are Wampanoags. Wow. And I was like... All right. Okay. All right. So, so the, I, the, things are changing. There, there's, there's a more in-depth understanding of it, but I, I think that there's still even confusion about like, well, there, there was a gathering and there was, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Silverman talks about it, but mm-hmm. it came much later. It came not so much as a result of sort of this big grateful Thanksgiving that we think of, but actually as sort of an alliance between, um, you know, these pilgrims and the native peoples uh, basically against another tribe. So it was a very different experience. And I don't think that's supposed to take away from what it is today, which is a moment to stop and be grateful for the blessings that we have. Um, And, you know, so I, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, we just can't have Thanksgiving. It's like, no, I think it's great to have a moment to stop and be thankful, right? As a modern holiday, right? Sort of a modern invention. We are not saying we are doing exactly what was done in the 17th century. We would never want to do that, right? I think that's important for us to understand. But there can be a sort of a modern holiday or celebration. I think it was a federal holiday in what, the 1930s? Was this, I should have checked was it sort of fdr well yeah fdr issuing FDR, a federal holiday yeah and he he moved the date i'm sure someone listening is like screaming at the yeah at probably phone, right? <laughs> like, oh my god how do they not know this i know he moved the date um and and they fixed the date so that it was a certain amount of time before christmas and kind of creates this christmas shopping season as well um, right but it goes all, all the way back to i believe lincoln was the first president to proclaim yes. yeah right as the sort of modern celebration but the right the federal holiday, I think. Yeah. And, and and what Dr. Silverman talks about is that this whole idea of like the first Thanksgiving and not being part of Thanksgiving doesn't really come about until the 20th century that like Mm -hmm. the, the, the Lincolnian version of Thanksgiving was about like, you know, we're in the midst of this great national um, fratricide and we need to stop and give thanks for what we do have and for who we are and for the nation that we have. It Mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, we're really need to celebrate the first Thanksgiving and pilgrims. Um, and that comes much later as we try and develop this, this sort of national identity and talk about real first Americans and the people who landed at Plymouth rock and that kind of thing. Um, so like all things that it has a history, right. And that's one of my favorite things to point out to my daughter and, and, um, um, and my wife and, and, and she knows as it too, is like, well, everything has a history. You yes. Know? So everything has a history. Everything it's... has a history. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and so does, so does Thanksgiving. 
Yeah, exactly. And you know, you mentioned Victorian Christmas. So I'm curious about, you know, so many house museums and many historic sites have their special Christmas events. I am curious to know if you have any favorites there. I'll say that last year, I, in the depths of the COVID pandemic winter, I attended an online Victorian Christmas tour at the Mark Twain house, had a number of tours that were Zoom based, I believe, but they were, you know, they were digital. You got a link, you logged in, and then they had the physical house decorated for Christmas. But the guide had different tours based on the history of the Twain family, right? So it was sort of how the Twain family, Clemens family, I should say, um, celebrated Christmas, right? I think there was another one about the history of philanthropy and giving at Christmas. Mm. So they were very like well researched and, um, sort of a spoken guide, right? There wasn't a whole lot of interaction since we were on Zoom, although they invited interactions. But it was cool to say like, okay, wow, they are really trying to maintain their tradition of having a house decorated for Christmas, which I think, you know, a lot of people love to go to these historic sites and just see the lights, right? See the pretty decorations. But they were trying to really have the sort of historical programming there as well and and do it all over Zoom for the first time. So I'm curious to see if more sites continue to do these sort of online programs in addition to the physical in-person ones. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens if people keep up with that. You know, I... I, I ran a historic house museum at one point and, you know, the Christmas season is always a big draw. People want to be enmeshed in a historic place at that time. It feels evocative. It somehow reconnects us. I think the holidays are a moment when we look back anyway. And so looking a little further back, so much of our Christmas celebration is built in the Victorian period. So many of our traditions kind of go back to that, um, you know, the, the, the tree itself and, and all these different pieces. Um, we have an upcoming preserve cast episode or, or maybe, maybe, maybe it already dropped. I don't know when, depending on when, when this episode drops, but, um, where we talk to our friends over at Kiplin hall in the United kingdom about their Christmas, uh, uh, interpretation and celebration this year where they're going to do a 1970s Christmas, which I think is interesting because, you know, it's it's the 50th anniversary of them being established is, is what they call charity. And um, so they're looking at Christmas in 1971 and they're doing like, um, you can go and do macrame um, there and I love that. <laughs> make baubles and um, they have 1970s Christmas music playing. And But they also were talking about like what was Britain like in the 70s. Um, and I think that that's where I get most interested is when sort of like what you were talking about, like, okay, philanthropy and things like that. Like what does you know, when you're interpreting that period, um, what are the, what's the broader context of Christmas at that moment? What's going Mm -hmm. on in the national consciousness? So, you know, when I was at a historic house museum, we did a 1940s Christmas once where we talked about like what Christmas was like on the home front during World War II and, you know, the experience of soldiers writing home and sort of the, the, you know, not knowing what the future would hold and rationing and Christmas and things like that. So I think it's, it's an oper- it's always the good thing is it's an people are attuned to history and nostalgia in a way that they maybe aren't all year long and so it's a great opportunity to grab people and i thought the 70s thing was cool because you know as i mentioned in that episode it's like 
you know, the 70s now, at least here in the States, are, you know, something constructed in the 70s is conceivably eligible for the National Register now. Right. Introducing so the 1970s, right? They're yeah, introducing and, it to the register. Yeah. It's and so now. It's, it's that moment. And it, and it, I think celebrating the 70s at Christmas is sort of a way of kind of conferring, like, this is historic now, right? And I think right. people are having a hard time with that. People had a hard time. 10 years ago with mid-century modern in the 60s, oh, how could that possibly be? And I think that there's been a shift and people are like, oh, that's obvious, that's super cool, that's super historic, we're into that, right? Even just a sort of a national consciousness, you know, you see so much mid-century modern um, material and furniture and stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure that we've gotten there with the 70s yet, and it'll probably be another I don't 10 think years. so. <laughs> and I think it that's one of the challenges, I think, of working as a historian or a historic site or a preservationist within living memory, right? People look yeah. back to it. As you point out, some people engage with the 1970s as a form of nostalgia for their teenage years or their childhood. And so I always think it's an interesting process of engaging people and saying, okay, well, we're celebrating Christmas in 1971, but then trying to get the historical or perspective or analysis in there when most people I think are going to say like, oh, we had this couch at home or right. yes, we listened to this song. It reminds me of my childhood. But then to try to kind of maybe nudge them, this is where the interpretation comes in, right? Maybe asking some provocative questions and, and seeing if people are willing to go and look at it from a broader context, right? Like knowing what we know now, studying the 1970s in sort of the retrospective analysis of historians, you know, does it challenge memories? I think some people find that interesting. Some people find that threatening, right? To say, no, that wasn't my experience. That wasn't what my family Christmas was like. You must be wrong. So it gets into this gray area of, on the one hand, not wanting to sort of generalize and say, oh, your, must, your experience must have been X, Y, and Z, while also trying to think about the context that really did, that people did share, um, and I think a lot of younger people are interested in this as maybe a way of connecting to their parents or their grandparents. I know a couple of years ago, you know, my mom is on her local historical society board and I'd seen that some, some museum had had a kind of, you know, a, a quote unquote, a retro Christmas, like a 1960s, they had the, um, aluminum Christmas tree and they had like a little, um, living room set up where people could come and sit and like take holiday photos. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mom, you should do this at the holiday open house at your local historical society. And so, you know, the call went out, everyone had their old 1960s couches and trees and accessories. And they created this area. And my mom said, people loved it, especially young people. They dressed, you know, they dressed up in kind of like 1960s clothes. They sat there, they thought it was so cool. They could have their picture taken there. But then they went to the museum, you know, and they maybe engaged in something that hadn't drawn them there in the first place. So yeah, I think I it's think great the, as a way to potentially engage people in maybe pushing their boundaries or getting them in a museum when they might not have been interested otherwise. Yeah, I think the recent past and nostalgia is, is, a, is a powerful tool. And I, and I also think it's important for us to remember that although you know, for me as a child of the 80s, the 70s doesn't seem that long ago. And certainly for our parents, it's something that's a lived experience. For my daughter, born in 2016, the 70s is like ancient history. Right. <laughs> right. Like, so, I mean, for her, 9-11 is a historical event that predates her. But, mm -hmm. you know, 1971 might as well be World War II for her. Right. 
Um, so I, you know, I think it's important to put that all kind of in context too about our experience and, and what we remember. So let's take a quick break here, come back, talk about some hot topics and what we're reading, and we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here, and I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Joined today again by my good friend, Dr. Whitney Martinko. And we've been talking about everything from um, cloistered living to 1970s Christmas and macrame. So we've covered a lot of ground in the first part of this episode. And, and here as we come to our conclusion and wrap up, we're going to talk about some hot topics, things that we're interested in, preservation, things that are happening I wanted to mention, um, I, I mentioned it to you uh, before we uh, hit record, this interesting new executive order out of Governor Northam in Virginia, which is requiring the state to confer with native tribes before they issue permits that could impact cultural or historical resources. And apparently it, based on what I've read, goes further than what is standard in Section 106. I think it's a big step forward. I know you kind of had some thoughts on that. Right. I was thinking about this in terms of the work that was a couple of years ago threatening really the heart of the Monacan nation in Virginia, um, and that was Arasawit. So the James River Water Authority was seeking to build a pump station along uh, the Ravana River. And this is just east of where I live, used to live in Charlottesville when I was doing my graduate training. And so that seems like an example where I know several um, Monacan leaders were not consulted, right? This is a place that has been documented, um, not uh, sort of in many, in many forms, right? And the indigenous community looks to this place um, as the heart of Rasawik archaeological investigations have shown that this was indeed a really important site. Um, you know, there, there's sort of a, a lot of evidence and meaning attributed to the site. And I believe that this is something that really hit the national preservation headlines. It was named one of the most endangered historic places, one of the top ones um, several years ago by the National Trust. But I do hope that this is something that will... Um, mandate, right? Give more authority to um, Virginia tribal nations, right? Federally and state recognized um, as we had talked about, right? But of course, that always brings up the question of if a tribe is not state or federally recognized, will there be the same burden or mandate, right? To to consult with, with leaders of these communities. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, I think. Yeah, it's interesting to see how it plays out. And it also doesn't give you the, you know, one of the challenges with 106 and a lot of these consultation issues is that it doesn't confer on you oftentimes the ability to file suit. In fact, a lot of times in the statute, it says nothing here confers standing. I see, um, yeah. And I, and I will mention one interesting thing is that in Maryland, um, for several years in a row, and it'll happen again, there's an effort to introduce a constitutional amendment that basically says, it's a green amendment that basically says, Marylanders have a right to a clean environment, 
which gives Marylanders standing to to take action and sue if if some type of policy or something is put in place. We have worked diligently at Preservation Maryland to make sure that in that same amendment, it says Marylanders, amongst other things, have a right to a clean, healthy environment and also in and sort of in this big long litany of sentence um, of all the things that that means it says historic natural cultural yes. resources yes because so, the pennsylvania uh state amendment was i think in the 1960s yes. it might have been the early 70s i believe it was the 60s includes historic resources right it that does this is a right. And so yeah so we have we have made sure that it's in there so that in theory, if some type of state action were taken that would be ultra destructive to historic resources um, and sort of an egregious um, issue, it could potentially give Marylanders or organizations standing in a situation like that to file suit. So um, it's been introduced over and over again. It, it, gets, it builds in momentum every year, um, but we've been part of that coalition to try and see a Green Amendment passed here in Maryland. And that, that's kind of part of this broader conversation about, about all of this. Um, and speaking of native representation, we have a new, finally, director of the National Park Service after years of acting directors since the Obama administration, um, Chuck Sams, our yes. first indigenous leader of the National Park Service. Right. Coming on the heels, of course, of Deb Holland leading the Department of the Interior. So I was shocked to learn that it had been so many years since there had been a director of the NPS. I knew it had been a long time that there had been acting directors sort of rotating through that position. But I think that, you know, this will be great for um, certainly for Indigenous leaders. It's amazing to see this representation in these federal positions. It'll also be really great to have a director of the National Park Service, right? That can't be good for morale to have four years of acting directors, right? No consistent leadership. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what direction you think the NPS will go, right? Will, will Sam's take the NPS in a particular direction? I've never worked for the NPS or, you know, very closely with them, but I know that you've, you know, had different working relationships with the NPS over yeah. the years. I'm curious if you think there's a certain direction that should be taken or needs to be taken. Well, I mean, I think at its most basic level, it's just like, as you said, it's great to see that there is an actual leader because with true leadership and confirmed position, they have much more authority to kind of move and try and create this culture that, that needs to be created um, and, and leadership and sort of looking at like what the second century of the National Park Service is going to be. You know, we got through in 2016 the centennial and then without real leadership um, and out without real focus on the Park Service, it, it, you know, what that second century will look like has been largely, you know, the focus of partner groups and friends groups and advocates and things like that. But I think leadership from within the Park Service is incredibly important. Excited to see where that heads. Um, you know, we've been working obviously on our campaign for historic trades in partnership with the Park Service and had an opportunity to testify before Congress on an issue, which was exciting um, to try and um, help build out an even larger historic trades training center here in Maryland. So, um, yeah, I think I think that kind of leadership and looking at where we head and also implementation of the Great American Outdoors Act, which passed in the last Congress, is the largest single increase in support for the Park Service since Mission 66. Um, where does that go? What does that look like? How do we create more accessibility of national park units to all Americans? How do we make sure that national park units 
and the leadership and the employees are representative of the broad diversity of the American experience. I mean, those are some, those are big challenges. Um, and the park service is called on to do a lot, but it also is, you know, an agency of government that, you know, is, is almost universally loved by the American people. Um, and, and hope to, hope to see it continue to do that. So it'll be exciting to see where this heads, you know, he was just confirmed last week. So we don't, you know, he, he's, he's got, he's got to give him some time to settle in, right. Doesn't doesn't need to, yeah, need some time to, uh, to be able to, to make those changes and create that, create that direction. Yeah. And it also looks like a, a previous guest of PreserveCast, um, Professor Sarah Bronin, um, of Cornell, um, is uh, is poised to be confirmed as the next director of the advisory council on historic preservation. Um, her her um, nomination passed out of committee in the Senate, and so she's up for full consideration, just like um, Chuck Sams was. Um, and it would be fantastic to see her because she is a a bright mind in the preservation community. You and I were sort of bemoaning the fact that she is so incredibly efficient, and effective. She she puts yes. us all to shame. Um, and I with, love that all of these folks seem to be bringing this vision too of thinking about historic and natural resources together, right? That this isn't sort of the history on one side or culture on one side and sort of so-called nature on the other side that we need to be thinking about um, you know, humans as part of a sort of broader ecology. We, th- we need to be thinking about history as something that encompasses things like rivers as well as buildings. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really hopeful that this new generation of leaders will really think about preservation and about historic resources in an, in an integrated way, right? That I yeah. think that is really meaningful uh, and, and necessary in a, a lot of ways. Yeah, and I'm excited about her particularly about her awareness and understanding of housing issues and how that impacts preservation, because I think that that could make preservation a real force for good um, as a way of addressing these pervasive housing challenges and how preservation can play into that. So to be continued on the the, the Brennan (laughs) administration, but but excited to see where that heads. Yeah. And I think that that is a great example too, of how thinking about sustainability as a framework can really integrate preservation with issues like housing and gentrification and energy generation, right? That these don't need to be competing agendas that we can sort of think about the the various needs of communities in tandem with preservation of historic resources, that that can be something that works together. And I know we usually talk about what we're reading at the yeah, end, what but that's are you a reading? perfect segue to, um, I feel like I always come out of the gate with something a little off the, um, off the track. Right. But yeah. I was thinking a lot about, um, maintenance. And so in thinking about sustainability, I have been reading, uh, again about maintenance as a, this sort of a, an academic framework as an ethos that is a field of study very interdisciplinary among a certain set of scholars who really think about academic study and tangible practice is very hard to separate, right? So sort of these cross-disciplinary thinking groups, um, attention to, to thinking and as praxis, but um, I guess I'll put a shout out there for the maintainers.org. It's a group of scholars and practitioners. They have a great website that talks about their work and their thinking and was recently having my students read over their 
kind of their ethics page, the values that guide them, how they set out particular guidelines for interactions. And I just think it's a, a, a great way of thinking for those who may have not have thought about maintenance as a framework for thinking. They think about um, repair work as maybe a, a a task list rather than it's, a way of seeking the world, seeing the world, right. That broken world thinking, um, that, that Jackson talks about in his essay, um, from, I guess, 2014 or about a decade ago, but this whole idea of thinking that the, the, the world tends to operate not in continuity and, um, kind of progress and always upward growth, but the, the world tends for, tends to decay, right? And break apart and actually takes a lot of work to keep things together, right? Whether the things are buildings or gas lines that that are being repaired outside of my window, right? On my century old street, that it, things are constantly breaking around us and it takes a lot of work and it's important to study the practices and the people who who keep things going. So that's, I think, of interest to a lot of folks who work uh, in preservation, yeah, and it's funny, this is not scripted, nor was this planned, nor I'm not even sure if you're aware of this, but through our campaign for historic trades, we are working with the U.S. Department of Labor to register actual uh, apprenticeships for various historic trades work, because that's one of right. the big systemic barriers to creating more tradespeople. And one of the low-hanging fruit on our list is creating our first apprenticeship, which we're actually putting in this December, the package for consideration by the U.S. Department of Labor, is preservation maintenance. Oh, I love Um, that. And basically creating a registered apprenticeship for sort of this catch-all for someone who could work at a historic building or for a company or something like that and be aware of how to maintain a historic building so that we don't get to the point that we need massive restoration projects on every building. Because sometimes, it, in many cases, in almost all cases, it starts as a little problem. There is a hole in the gutter. And then the hole in the gutter turns into a hole in the cornice. And then the hole in the cornice turns into a wall failure in the masonry wall. And then that turns into a foundation issue. And before you know it, you've lost half the building because there was a hole in the gutter. But if the preservation maintenance professional fixed the hole in the gutter, you just saved $3 million, right? So um, it's funny that you say that. And and I always come back to this um, Kurt Vonnegut quote that everybody wants to build and nobody wants to maintain. Right. And that is the reality of sort of the lived experience of the preservationist, right? Everybody thinks that the new thing is going to be the catch-all and the save-all. And really, in reality, it's maintaining and and taking care of things. So we are on the same maintenance wavelength right now. And we'll have to get the maintainers involved in our... um, in our application for a preservation. And I love that that's your first, I love that that's your first internship too. I, there's something symbolic about that, right? To say that this yeah. is really important. This is what we're going to do first. So yeah, what are you absolutely. reading these days? I am reading a book called The Age of Wood. Um, and this is actually, thankfully, is going to be an upcoming PreserveCast um, guest, um, Dr. Uh, Roland Enos um, from the UK, wrote this book, basically a reappraisal of wood as this um, material that binds together human history from the moment we left the trees to modern day uh, affordable housing and stick built housing, basically wood is this continent, this continuity is, is wood in our lives. 
and that we think about the Bronze Age and we think about the Stone Age, and but we don't realize that wood was integral to all of those ages. That none of those none of those metals would work without wooden handles, and you know that the wheel doesn't work unless you have you know some type of axle that pulls it together, and that's always wood. And um, it's a fascinating look, and I think as a preservationist, um, wood is the common un, until you get to brutalism basically wood is the common material that is always being dealt with in every historic preservation issue from the neolithic to um you know 1940s 1950s 1960s housing and even to this day we still build with wood and so i think it's important for us to sometimes at least for me i like to sometimes stop and think about like the base materials with which we're working whether that be stone mortar wood like it's so easy to kind of um, to just get enmeshed in the big story of preservation, and I, I love to stop and think about like, okay, what are the little fibers that make up this wood, and and what are we dealing with here, and and what a unique substance wood is because it's both strong but it's malleable, and it gets stronger with age, and you know things happen when it gets wet, and you can burn it, and you can heat yourself with it, and um, so I'm all about wood right now. That's great. And I think that <laughs> materials are sometimes a, a great way to think about those long-term continuities over time. Historians, right, they're, they're obsessed with change over time. They love to talk about change and why things change and how things change, why it matters. But maintainers, in fact, uh, are also, there are people who like to think about continuities, right? And uh, all the work that it, it takes to maintain objects and social networks and data and all that sort of thing. But I think that materials are a way of thinking about, well, what are some practices that have been maintained or how have people continued to work with similar materials over time in ways that we may not appreciate if we're always looking for the innovation, right? And the new. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been, this is, uh, this has been one of the best conversations I think we've had so far. This has been really fun. Um, so we've talked about provocation, maintenance, and, and wood and really and what else and holidays and what else is there in life other than those, those four big topics. So this has been fun. Thankful to have you with us um, over this year and looking forward to where these conversations head in the future. Thanks so much, Whitney. Agreed. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving. <laughs>